Take your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 90. So Psalm 90, almost in the middle of the Psalms, a little past the middle of the Psalms. Uh, So it's almost in the middle of your Bible. So if you have a Bible, and that's how I used to always be told to find the Psalms, just kind of open up to the middle, and it's not far from there. But we're going to be in the Old Testament, and we're going to be in the book of Psalms for the next four weeks. We're starting a new series today that will lead us through the month of September, and the title for the series is Smoke from a Fire. And that um, title actually comes from a metaphor that was first used or talked about in the 5th century by a theologian named Augustine. And he says that often we can identify the things in our lives that are wrong spiritually by chasing down our emotions to their source. And that the emotions that we're giving off can be detectors for us about what's really happening in our lives. It's like smoke from a fire. The emotion itself is not the fire, but it is smoke that tells us that there's a fire somewhere. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some emotions and what that may mean for us and also how to handle that and deal with that. And so in the weeks ahead, we'll talk about emotions like anger and depression or sadness and shame. But today we're going to focus on confusion. We're going to trace it back to its source a little bit. We're going to talk about the confusion in our lives and then look at Psalm 90 to see what it tells us about how to handle it. Now, here's the thing that I want us to do over the next few weeks. I want us to treat our emotions like you would treat smelling smoke in your house. If you woke up and smelled smoke in your house, you wouldn't say, ah, it's probably nothing. Right? I'm sure it's just, it's just something like, you know, you, you would investigate, you would find out. Um, and we have a, um, we have a fire alarm that is right near our kitchen. Not fire, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Smoke detector. We have a smoke detector. We have a fire alarm. We don't go through that. We don't, we would not do that with kids. That would not be good to have one you pull. We have smoke detector. That's what we have. Those are what those are called. All right, those little round things on your... Uh, we have one near our kitchen, and any time we're cooking on the stove with bacon or something and some smoke gets going, that thing starts going off, right? And it's annoying. And so we do what everybody does at that moment. We open all the windows. We start fanning with stuff. We open doors. But if we don't take the whatever's burning or causing the smoke off of the fire, it doesn't matter, right? Like, it doesn't matter. It'll continue to go. You have to go to the root of it. Emotions are usually not the problem. But they indicate something underneath that is. Another way to think about this is that our emotions are like the check engine light of our souls. I thought smoke from a fire was a better title than check your engine light. And also because most of us do just ignore that when it comes on, all right? Pop the hood. Oh, looks good to me. Nothing there. All right, let's go. We'll just keep going. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to ask how to read our emotions and find some biblical wisdom in the midst of it. And we're going to do that each week by turning to what I think is probably the most emotional book in the Bible, which is the Psalms. It's emotional. It's 
poetic, it's musical, but it has some real moments of this is how I feel, God. And so today we're going to talk about confusion. Like, how do we handle confusion? What does it show us about our lives? And here's the reality. I don't know that there's ever been a more confusing time in history than what we have now. Okay? Now, I'm just going to make a confession to you. I've never lived through a pandemic before. I don't know if you have, but there hadn't been one in a hundred years, so the likelihood is very small. And that has put on top of what already was a confusing life, and it has caused just mass confusion. In fact, I just put in confusion in Google, and the top three news headlines that came up were all about the pandemic. The NIH panel explains convalescent plasma over confusion with FDA emergency authorization. The scary thing for me is I actually know what that means. You know, a few months ago, I've been like, convalescent plasma, what is that? I know what that means because of all of the information we got. Or after confusion, Baltimore will allow movie theaters to open, but not at the rate that they thought. The third one was emails show chaos and confusion at Ole Miss over coronavirus exposure. I can make an Ole Miss joke here, but I won't. Even this week, our state changed how they counted, recovered people, And how they were calculating that, which meant we went from at one point being on the verge of not being able to go to school every day in Sumner County to the next day being way away from having to worry about it. And all the kids are going back to school this week. Full time. And God's parents said. I even went to a site that said all the answers you want about coronavirus. First question, how did it start? We don't really know. It's all the answers you want, probably from an animal giving it to a human, but we're not sure. How long does it last on surfaces? This is really helpful. It lasts from a couple of hours to several days, but we're not sure. Do mask work? Probably. They probably don't prevent you catching it, but they prevent you giving it. So if you already have it, you really need to wear a mask. And if you don't have it, you're probably not going to help you wearing a mask not to get it, but it'll help you not to give it that you don't have it. Treatment. How are they treating it? Well, there are lots of different ways that they're treating, and they haven't found anything that they're sure works all the time. Now, I'm not, listen, I'm not, and I'm not one of those that is really mad about all of that. There are some people that are really mad about all of that. We don't know because this is brand new. We're trying to figure it out. But it leads to confusion. And that's not to mention how the pandemic impacts your life in particular. Your health. We have people that are joining us online that aren't able to get out because of how it could impact their health. We have people in this uh, church who have already had coronavirus or have loved ones that have. One of the guys from my PhD cohort in, um, at Southern Seminary that we got very close doing that for three years. I didn't know, but just read today. He, he has struggled with it for a week and a half and he's a very healthy guy. It's a few years older than me and has been, uh, in and out of emergency room a couple of times and had no clue. Jobs all over America are being impacted. Careers are being changed. People's futures. What does the future even look like? How can we plan? This morning on the way in, I met Janet Lloyd, who had found somewhere, had a bunch of of, 
plastic Easter eggs on sale and she bought them out. And she said, I'm optimistic about the Easter egg hunt that next year happening. Man, can you imagine a couple of years ago us saying, boy, I hope we have an Easter egg hunt. Hope that we'll be allowed to have one. School is up in the air and decisions are made and it's difficult stuff coming in all the time. Church, there have been decisions that we've had to make as a church that I never imagined. And you put COVID on top of all of the other facts and demands and commitments and questions that fill our lives. I read some things that were written before COVID this week that talked about the fact that Americans lived some of the most confusing lives that they could document in history before all this hit. And they said part of that is because we want to control every decision that we make and the number of choices we have has grown exponentially. Even the grocery store can be overwhelming. There are 27 varieties of Crest toothpaste. Right? 53 varieties of Campbell's condensed soup. And according, a couple of years ago, the average American grocery store had 48,750 items. 36% of shoppers said that they were overwhelmed by the information they had to process to make a buying decision. We have made our lives complicated. We've scheduled ourselves too much, we've given ourselves too many options, and we live in this decision paralysis sometimes. And you add to that the number of decisions we have to make with the lack of trust in any sort of authority helping us to make those decisions, and suddenly you have a place where confusion reigns. And sometimes confusion can stem from or cause spiritual issues as well. It's not just whether we're going to buy the Crest Pro whitening, cavity reducing toothpaste. It's what is my real purpose in life? Am I fulfilling that? What's my worth in life? What's my value in life? How's my marriage fit into that? Is my marriage going to make it? Are we, am I in the right place there? What does my future look like? What does it look like for me five years from now, ten years from now, twenty years from now? We have situations that happen in our lives and we wonder where God is in the midst of that. We look around us and think, where in the world are we going? Where is this world going? What is going to happen next? It seems that in the age of perpetual news cycles, it's no longer 24-hour news cycles, it's just news cycles. When there's a new crisis and a new concern and a new worry every day. That we never get time to catch our breath. And so as we begin this discussion of confusion today and what it means for us. And as we read in a moment Psalm 90, and I'll explain why in just a minute while we're going there. I want you to think about what area of your life are you experiencing the most confusion in right now? Is it something with your career? Is it something with your family? Is it a relationship you have? Is it something related to the pandemic? Is it something related to life in general? What area of your life are you experiencing the most confusion right now? And here's what I want you to know. God's not surprised that you're confused there. 
He's certainly not surprised by anything happening in your life. And he also doesn't want us to live in confusion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. Now, this is a verse specifically about the worship environment. And it's written to Corinth where at some point we'll talk about the church of Corinth. But their worship services were a mess. At least if all that's going on in there is described in there when you understand it culturally. And God says in the midst of that, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Often confusion, doubt, unrest, disorder are signs that we need to delve deeper into our relationship with the Lord. In order to seek out Him in the midst of a confusing situation. In general, if you look out there and you look at information and research about how do you, how do you clear up confusion, they'll give you two simple rules. One is to reduce the complexity in your life, and the second is to increase clarity in your life. Well, usually if you do one, you do the other, or you can find a balance of that. And we're going to talk about today, through Psalm 90, how we can reduce the complexity in our lives, the choices that we have, the the decisions that we have to make, and increase the clarity, the vision that we have. Psalm 90. Now you'll see before you even get to verse 1, if you have it open in your Bibles, and it's going to be on the screen in just a moment, but you'll see there that this is a prayer of whom? It's who? It's Moses, right? Now that's unique because it is the only psalm that we have, or that we are aware of, was written by Moses. And Moses is obviously a monumental figure in the life of the Old Testament and in the life of God's story. He was a man that lived a fascinating life in a wide variety of places and a man that by the end of his life, when we think this has kind of been written as he's looking back on all that he has seen, we know that Moses was a man who had experienced God in a variety of circumstances and situations and had also been in moments of sheer confusion. The first 40 years, to give you the cliff note version of Moses' life, the first 40 years he lived in the Egyptian palace under Pharaoh as, as raised as if he was one of the sons. The second 40 years of his life he lived in isolation and contemplation, shepherding herds. In the last 40 years of his life he lived leading a group of people, Israel, in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, but he particularly led the group of people that disobeyed God and they were just waiting to die so that the group could go into the promised land. And as he's there, looking back on his life, he tells us how to navigate life with clarity. Starting in verse 1, it says this, Lord, You have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. You return mankind to the dust, saying, Return, descendants of Adam, for in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday it passes by, like a few hours of the night. You end their lives, they sleep. They are like the grass that grows in the morning, in the morning it sprouts and grows, and by evening it withers and dries up. For we are consumed by your anger. We are terrified by your wrath. 
You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. Our lives last 70 years, or if we are strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we flew by, flew, fly away. Now you're thinking, Pastor, when are we getting to the, the fun part here? Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due to you. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Lord, how long? Turn and have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. Make us rejoice for as many days as you have humbled us for as many years as we have seen adversity. Let your work be seen by your servants and your splendor by their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be on us. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. One of the things that helps us to gain clarity is to go back to the basics of what we believe. And what Moses does in Psalm 90 is that he goes back to the basic elements of what he came to believe and understand and to live through his life. And the first thing that he says right off the top that we must understand that when life gets complicated and we get confused and we're not sure what direction to go and we're not sure how we're going to make it through all of this, then we're worried about all of the things that are out there and we can't make sense of the voices that are trying to speak into our lives. The first thing that we must understand is this. God is great. It's the most fundamental truth of them all. And that's how Moses starts this psalm. Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world from eternity to eternity. You are God in a world that is increasingly complex. We must first remember we have a God who is in complete control. We must understand who he is, the power that he has, the character of the God that we worship and that we serve. And we must, in the midst of it all, be crystal clear on the fact that he is God. Someone has said that if we are foggy about who God is, our life will be filled with confusion and chaos. Moses gives us some clues about the God that we serve in these passages as you kind of delve into them. In verse 1, when he uses the word Lord, that is not the personal name of God. That is not Yahweh, the one that he gave him when he came to him in the burning bush. The I am that I am name. The word there instead is the word Adonai. And that word has a range of meanings, but the understanding here is that he is the creator, that he is the ruler, And that he is in control, that he is the Lord, the master, the one in control of all. At the end of these two verses, when he says, you are God, he uses a different word for God there. He uses the word El, E-L. What's significant about that is that the people are getting ready to go into the promised land. The promised land is filled with Canaanites. Canaanites had a God they claimed was the God, the one that was over, was the father of their God, Baal. And his name was El, E-L. God is stating to them very clearly that the Canaanite God is not real. I am God. I am the one, the only God. 
There's this discussion in there of him being a refuge. The original translation or the original words for there literally are dwelling place. And it meant a, an oasis. A, you know what an oasis, right? A, a, something in the desert that gives you strength. And you think about these people wandering in the wilderness. That in the midst of the wilderness, Moses says that, God, you have always been our oasis. You have always been our safe haven. You have always been that place where we could be refreshed and find joy. Moses says that when everything in our lives is complicated and confusing and complex, the first step to bringing clarity is to say that you are God and you are great. Just in these verses, he reminds us that he is creator, that he is a personal God. You have been our refuge That he is eternal from eternity to eternity. He sets that up in a couple of ways. He says that from eternity to eternity. That means there was no beginning and there is no end. You have always been. The other way he sets it is everything we see and know and touch, you birthed is the word they used. You created. In the Old Testament, the word used for God doing that is a word that is only used of God. And it means to make something out of nothing. Ex nihilo, out of. Of nothing. He says that you are unmatched. There is no God like you. And that you are our protector. Moses was on Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments. And as he gave the Ten Commandments, that first one that came out, we're studying him on a Wednesday night. And the first two are directly about worshiping the right God in the right way. And the point of all of that is, is that we worship God and declare him to be great in the fullness of who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. That we don't get any decision in how we define who God is. We don't get to say things like, well, you know, I would only serve a God who. I can't imagine a God that would not. We don't get a choice about who God is. So we talked about last week. Sometimes I was watching a, a news program one time on a political day. And all that confusion, you know, so I didn't even talk about politics there. That's not confusing at all right now. Um, that's sarcasm, okay. Um, I was watching a talk show and two people were on a panel and they were having conversation with each other on opposite sides of an issue. And both of them at some point said, well, my Jesus would never. And they said opposite things. And I was like, well, you don't get to decide who your Jesus is. He is. God is. Moses said that we have to come to understand that many times in our lives, our confusion comes from trying to control things that only God can control. The number of times in my life that I've had to have the conversation with someone that reminds me of this, or even the conversation with the Lord in my prayer, that God would say to me, Lyle, you can't do anything about that anyways. Control what you can control, be faithful to what God's given you, and leave the rest to the Lord. What's your relationship like with the the Lord? You see, it's complicated by some things that are in the rest of this psalm. Verses 7-11 through give us a dire diagnosis of who we are. 
Verse 7 says, we are consumed by your anger, you are terrified by your wrath. Why? Why is he mad? Why is this wrath coming? Why is his anger there? Well, verse 8 tells us, because you have shown us our iniquities, our secret sins are in light of your presence. There are no secret sins before God. All our days ebb away under your wrath. Who understands, in verse 11, the power of your anger. Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. See, here's the issue. Our God, who is God, who is sovereign, who is holy, who is perfect, created us. And then we had this problem in our lives that we felt like we needed to take control from the God who's in control. And a chasm was created when Adam and Eve sinned. And we're not putting all the blame on them, although they were the ones that started it. You and I make our own decisions to walk away from the Lord. And every single one of us has walked away from the Lord. We have gone our own direction. And that chasm that was created didn't just cause a problem with our relationship with the Lord, although that is definitely there. That chasm is created. But it did a number on everything we know and exist. Few years ago, our kids sang in vacation Bible school. They still sing it sometimes um, in their children's worship. A song that's called "Sin Messed Everything Up." It's kind of funny because it's got this little it's beat that kind of drives underneath it, and it sounds kind of upbeat. And kids have fun, but they're singing "Sin Messed Everything Up." And here's the truth: when we delve down deep, what Scripture reminds us is. Yes, sin is what has caused all of this. But guess who brought sin into the world? We did. We could change that, not just to sin messed everything up, but we messed everything up. And since sin has entered the world, relationships are not right, this planet has not been right, and confusion is a part of the plan of the enemy To distract us. And so it's impossible for us because of our sin and the wrath of God on that sin when we chose to walk away from him to have a relationship with God unless he does something about it. And verses 13 through 15 remind that mercy is available. He says, have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love. One of the amazing things about this God that we serve that makes him great is that he is also good. And that he decided that it wasn't good enough just to let us go our own way because that led to destruction. But he, in every opportunity, gave a chance for us to find salvation with him. Now Moses, writing this, is the one that instituted the sacrificial system through the tabernacle and eventually would go through to the temple. And every year, the Jews would have to lay their sins on an animal and then release that animal to show that God was releasing their sins. They had to make sacrifices on a regular basis for the sins in their lives. And we know in the New Testament that God made a way for us through Jesus. That he became the sacrificial lamb. That he became the one who gave his life for us. Who lived perfectly for us. And here's what I want to tell you today. If you're listening to me in this room or you're watching online. 
and you have never accepted the forgiveness that comes because Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again from the grave, then your life and your death and your eternity will be filled with chaos and confusion. The only solution is to trust the God who is both great and good. So the first step for us to bring clarity to our lives is to realize that God is great. Here's the second thing for us to realize, and this is important for us to realize, and that is life is short. He tells us in verses 3 through 6 this, You return mankind to the dust, saying, Return descendants of Adam. For in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by, like a few hours of their life, of the night. You end their lives in their sleep. They're like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning it sprouts and grows. And by evening it withers and dries up. Now listen, you have to realize that Moses, again, just to remind us, is leading upwards of two million people through a wilderness. And his job is to shepherd them until they all die. That's a lot of funerals in a few years. Everywhere they encamped and left, they left behind a reminder that God was finished with that generation. And we don't have time to go into all that. Many of you know the history of that, that they disobeyed God. Moses disobeyed God. God said that this generation shall not enter the promised land because they haven't trusted me, that it will go to the next generation. But Moses gives us some glimpses of what our lives are like in their time frame. Three pictures. The first is that he says a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. Yesterday he says, actually it's yesterday, which means that you can barely grasp it or hold on to it. Or it's like a watch in the night, which was like three to four hours. He says it in this translation, just a few hours in the night. That Think about that, that a thousand years to the Lord is like three or four hours, which means our lives, which are at most 70 or 80 years, according to this passage, maybe in today's world, 90 or 100, compared to a thousand is a tenth of that. So you're looking at minutes in God's economy. In the scope of eternity, it is even smaller than that. He says this idea in chapter or verse, the the verses after that about that you'll be swept away in the sleep of death. The words there literally mean like a torrential rain that brings a flash flood to a barren area and washes it away. I can't help but think about floods anymore without thinking about the flood that hit Nashville several years ago when we tried to have church that morning and driving home, we couldn't find. I ended up leaving my car here and riding home with the Brooks family. We could not find a path home almost to get there because floods, waters had risen so quickly and just rushing stuff away. I think about it every time I drive past, and this may be a reference that some of you don't get around here, but I drive past Moss Wright Park and go down by uh, JP2 school and right past that, that what used to be a little neighborhood down there. And every time I drive past that, I think about the fact that it is just cleared and they won't build on that anymore because it was destroyed. The point of that is that it comes suddenly without warning. Now, we all had a little bit of warning that something bad was going to happen. But living in the days that Moses is writing, they didn't have any warning for those kind of things. 
They didn't have Leland Statham talking to them about what was coming. He says that it just comes quickly and without notice and rushes us away. The other picture he gives is grass. And this is a strange one for us to get. But in the Middle East, in Israel, where they were, there was... There were places where grass would literally come up in the morning as green little sprigs. But because of the hot, dry air, that by afternoon they would be brown and dead. We have a very little amount of time. A few years ago we did a study here at the church called One Month to Live. And we asked the question, if you only knew you had one month to live, how would you live it differently? One of the things that this pandemic has caused is for many of us to face the reality of mortality. It's been humbling to think that in spite of our medical and scientific knowledge, it's been very difficult to get a grasp on what's happening. Now, the brevity of our life means a couple of things for us. First of all, it means that whatever confusion we have, whatever is really worrying us in our lives, it will pass. And if our lives are but a breath of air, how much more something we deal with a week or a month or a year? And the second thing it should do is it should focus our attention on the things that really matter. If you knew that you only had a month left, who would you apologize to? How would you refocus? What would your schedule look like? What would your spending habits look like? And the question simply is this, that if we realize life is short, are you ready for what comes after this life? Which leads us to the third thing about confusion. So we remember God is great. He's in control. That our life is short, and because of that, the problems that we have are temporary, and we need to refocus how we're living to the third thing, and that is he tells us to live wisely. Verse 12. It's a verse you ought to put up somewhere on your mirror, highlight it, circle it, write it in your car, and stick it where you can see it. Verse 12 says, teach us to number our days carefully, so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. That phrase, number our days carefully, is not just help us to know how long we have to live. It's not just a, hey, help us to know we have a short life. Help us to know that, that our time is fading quickly. It is to say, if time is short, how should I live? And the word used for wisdom there means a skill. It means to know how God wants you to live and to skillfully do it. It is the supernatural ability to understand how to live our lives according to God's plan. What's interesting to me is in Scripture, this is not the only time that wisdom, living wisely, is tied to numbering our days or taking advantage of the opportunities that God has given us. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 15 and 16 say, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. So he says, walk wisely. And then it says this, making the most of the time because the days are evil. The idea there is the way that we live wisely is we take advantage of every opportunity we have on this earth for the glory of God, for the spread of his kingdom. 
And the question you have to ask when you're in confusion times and you're worried about the decisions you're making and you're like, what does God want for me? The question you ask is, how does God want me to impact the world? First of all, understand, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God desires for you to impact the world with the message of the glory of his name. And he expects you to be a part of spreading his kingdom to people, understanding who he is. And as you figure out what God wants you to accomplish for his glory and for the spread of his kingdom, then you begin to make decisions that are intentional about living that way. You plan your life that way. You schedule your life that way. You spend your money that way. You live for what matters. When you realize that God is great, the most important thing in the world, He is almighty and in control. That He has saved you from your sins and that He didn't have to do that, but it is a precious gift of God. That we don't have much time here. It has a way of narrowing your focus and asking, and if I'm going to make the impact that God has called me to make, what am I supposed to be doing with the days that I have? And sometimes it feels like in our lives that we're in holding patterns or we got all the time in the world, but we're reminded from scripture that that's not the case and we got to get on with whatever God's called us to get on with we got to move from living lives of procrastination to the lives of the priorities and the priorities that really matter we got to live to impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and so in your life, whatever that confusing moment is, whatever that confusion is in your life, run it through the lens of the greatness of God, of the shortness of life, and of the purpose to which you've been called. Moses says and prays at the end of this, that God would let them rejoice for as many days as they have been humbled. And for as many years as they have seen adversity. His prayer was that God would use them for his glory and for the purposes of his kingdom in a way that would be glorifying to his name. He ends it by saying, let it be seen by your servants and your splendor by their children. And let the favor of the Lord establish the word there means to put on a solid foundation, a rock for others to see in the years to come. Let the work of our hands be established. My prayer is that my life, that our life as a church, that the works that we have are for the glory of God, for the sake of his kingdom, and that they would be established for generation after generation to see. For people to understand what it means to live for Him. I don't know what is confusing or complicated. I guess I could have used the word complicated almost as a confusion. Because sometimes we're, we're not, I'm not confused, it's just complicated. Overscheduled and unsure. When we begin to get back to the basics, to find that clarity in the fact that our lives should be first and foremost devoted to God, who is great. That we don't have as much time as we imagine we have. None of us are promised tomorrow even. And that we ought to live our lives for His glory, for the sake of His kingdom, with everything we have. It brings clarity to all the decisions we have to make.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that you are God of order and not chaos and not confusion. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who desires for us to have clarity in our lives, clarity to know what it is that you called us to do, clarity to know how to live that out on a regular basis, and clarity, Lord, just to live for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that today, for those that are in this room and for those that are listening online, Lord, that you would bring that clarity to their lives. You would help them to see the decisions that need to be made, that are made in light of the fact that you're in ultimate control, and Lord, that you are using us for your glory on the short time we have on this earth. Lord, help us to weed out the things that don't matter for eternity, that don't help to bring glory to your name, that don't help to spread your kingdom. Help us to weed those things out and just begin to focus completely on what you've called us to do. Lord, I pray if there's one here today that has not accepted you as their Savior, if there's one watching, listening online that has not accepted you as their Savior, Lord, that today would be the day that they would find the clarity that comes only from following you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.